Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all his other medical stories. <laughs> so last week, we talked about home hemodialysis. Yeah. About how you started doing dialysis at home, how it radically changed our lives and allowed you to feel much, much better and more stable throughout the week instead of being trapped in that cycle of kind of exhaustion and then feeling worse and then dialysis and then exhaustion and feeling worse. And it made a lot of things possible for us, including much, much easier travel. Yes. And we talked about traveling by car between Portland and Seattle to visit our families last episode. And we promised this episode we would talk about air travel. Yeah. So why don't we start by talking about if you want to take a trip via airplane and you're on home dialysis, what do you have to do? <laughs> I think I I at least touched on this last time that that was a big part of the design of this machine, a big part of the idea behind this machine, that it was a size and specifically a weight with the steel welded carrying case that was allowable on an airplane and that also in that protective case it would be fine as a cargo thing. In addition, as part of the training, they told you all about this stuff. They made sure you knew the FAA and ADA regulations regarding that kind of thing. And then you were given a packet, or I was given a packet, that included all of that stuff written down, printed out, a great deal of, of information so that you could whip it out and show it to the gate agent and say, no, really, this is allowed if they try to give you a bad time because, you know, it's a life-saving medical device, which is the phrase that you are taught to use. Right. And some of the things are if you roll up to the baggage check <laughs> yeah. in an airport with your 100-pound metal cube mm -hmm. in the mid-2000s, <laughs> Uh, they look at you funny. Best case scenario, they are definitely going to want to try to charge you an exorbitant fee for yes. an oversized check bag, which they're not allowed to do because it's a life-saving medical device. That's correct. But they also might not want to take it at all right? because it looks weird. Mm -hmm. And definitely, even if you check it, that thing is going to get opened up and poured over by the TSA. Yes. It happened every time we traveled. Of course. And they don't know what they're looking at. So a lot of what this packet is and what they're telling you and training you to do is kind of get past that first desk at airport security so that they will check the bag. Yeah. And to reassure them that you are in compliance. This is not just some sneaky, crazy thing that you have a real reason to have a real thing with you. I don't really have in my head uh, a list of other life-saving medical devices, but some other things are probably like air tanks for people that need that and stuff like that. But this definitely fits in the category. I think they might have even done some lobbying to make sure it was included. But yeah, we had to have that conversation every single time we flew. And sometimes it was a longer conversation and sometimes it was a shorter conversation. It always involved more than just the initial person that we met. We got pretty good at it, but it was always stressful because we knew we were right. And we also knew, you know, I need this. Like, I can't get on this plane if I don't bring it with me because I can't just show up in a city without having a machine. And, like, 
I guess, go to a hospital and say, I need dialysis, please help me. I mean, I could, but that's a really bad plan. <laughs> it's not a really uh, safe one. So we were mostly able to do that eventually fairly easily. Well, and it just occurs to me now as we're talking about this that it ties into kind of a larger thing, mm -hmm. which is we've got this machine, we've got all these papers, we've got a packet, we've got training, we know the phrases we're supposed to use. Right. And all of this is about being a person with a disability or an illness or even just a thing. Yeah. And you deal with it all the time. You live in it. Right. Other people that you interact with, when you're coming up to them with your giant crazy looking machine that for all they know could be the bomb you're trying to take on the airplane. Yeah, not very sneakily, but yeah. They have no experience with that. They're starting at intro level Ari's Disability 101, Ari's Weird Stuff beginner's class. Right. And so that happens a lot, not just with travel, not just with this weird machine, but all the time in your life, you've got this thing that you are this very complex, detailed expert in, and this thing you live with all the time that's very mm -hmm. familiar, and you're constantly, when you have to, interfacing with people who have no idea that it even exists. Right. And then they're gatekeepers. Um, literal gatekeepers in this case, where they can provide or allow access to something that you need, or in this case that we had paid for, based really on no knowledge of what exactly is going on, what the device is. You know, for for gate agents, they're viewing this as a customer service situation. Although I personally, having gone through that situation a number of times, might put service in sort of scare quotes, um, but they're they're viewing it as a customer interaction where these are the rules, these are the regulations that need to be followed. And the rules that I was operating under are not actually obscure, but not regularly used. They're an unusual situation. And I know them because it's really important that I know them. But your average gate agent doesn't. And maybe they should. Maybe they're supposed to. But maybe that was their, in their training eight years ago, and that's the last time they mentioned it or something. Right. And it has nothing to do with their day-to-day doing of their job. There's no reason yeah. that would be remembered. Right. From yeah, trainings not... <laughs> so many years ago. <laughs> right. Not not even a little bit. And I would bet everything that when we walked up to every gate we ever traveled to, that was the first time that person had ever seen a home dialysis machine. Mm -hmm. In addition to people not usually being familiar with kidney diseases in general, certainly dialysis and then home dialysis is a really rare thing for anybody to know about. Yeah, it really is. You usually only know about dialysis if you know somebody who is or was on dialysis. Otherwise, it, you're a medical professional. Right. Otherwise, you're a medical professional or you just happen to be weirdly informed about the world, which happens, but is, you know, unusual. We're alluding to this a bit when we kind of joke about how this box looks like a crazy bomb or people might be reluctant to right. let us take it on the plane. And the travel that we're going to talk about in this episode happened in 2007, 2008. Yeah. So this was still during the Bush administration. This was still very much, I mean, we still are to some degree, but very, very much in the post-September 11th airplane security mode. Mm -hmm. And I think like when I travel now and I travel more for work, it doesn't feel the way it felt then. So just as a reminder, people were way more itchy about this stuff then. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that we were at war was more present in the public consciousness, I think, than it is now. Right. And there was still always kind of like, oh, hey, some guy tried to light his shoes on fire or light his underwear on fire. That there were, that was <laughs> right. more of a recent ongoing thing at the time. Yeah, it was definitely 
more more present. We uh, hadn't all learned the rules about liquids and putting everything in three ounces in a Ziploc bag. Yeah, we were still there. So we were getting ready to travel. We had done all this training. I was really good with the machine by that point. And I went to my doctor because I had been told, hey, you need to go to your doctor and essentially be carrying a prescription for home hemodialysis with you. And that prescription would be a letter from the doctor essentially addressed to the airline itself on yeah. their letterhead saying, life-saving medical device, he has to take it on the plane, I, MD so-and-so, have approved this. Yeah, and it would also say probably Alport syndrome, it would say end-stage renal failure, it would say all of those things so that even though the actual personnel are probably not trained in medical uh, terminology, that it said all the very real things that were true and accurate about this so that if they decided to really check it out, which is unlikely, but if they did, that it, it told them the whole truth and it was from a doctor and not just me saying, here's my tale of craziness so I can bring this giant electronic contraption with me. So I went to see my doctor and I was sitting there with him and his fellow and we were going through all the stuff and I said, so I've got this travel coming up and I'm going to take the home hemo machine with me. And that's been going really well. Thank you. And we talked about that already. And I said, they told me that I need a, a prescription letter from you, sort of to whom it may concern. And I, I had notes about what it needed to say. And, you know, he's a professional, had done this many times. And he listened. And he said, OK, um, yeah, we can do that. But uh, I probably shouldn't sign it. And I was kind of like, what? And he said, well you know, I probably shouldn't sign it because of my name. And then he and I and the doctor who was his fellow all just kind of laughed like, oh, that's so true because his name is Dr. Ahmad, A-H-M-A-D. <laughs> um, and we thought, oh gosh, that's just, wouldn't that be so silly if they thought, oh, this is such a lie. But what happened was we all kind of went, ha ha, oh. And there was this really uncomfortable silence among the three of us because he meant it humorously. But he was also serious. Yeah, and there's a real thing behind what he's saying. Yeah, and we all kind of went, oh, okay. And he had been saying it to be funny, but he'd also been saying, no, really, this other doctor who's here with me, who unfortunately, whose name I don't remember. I keep thinking his name was Dr. Johnson, but I don't think it was. And, you know, we generally try to avoid using people's names on the podcast. In this case, it's part yeah. of the story but <laughs> yeah in this case is necessary but i haven't received permission usually so i don't include that so i'll call him dr johnson because i'm pretty sure i'm wrong i think signed the letter that dr ahmad wrote and we all felt bad about it <laughs> sort of like it was a good letter but we all felt bad that the situation was such that i could not carry a letter from like a department head at the University of Washington. I'm pretty sure that was his position. Like an extremely esteemed doctor because his name happened to have an H in it in a weird spot. So anyway, so then I had that letter with me whenever um, I traveled. Um, the other things that one needed to do to prepare for this is that I needed to call my rep at the company and say, hey, I'm going to travel. I'm going to travel to this place and this place or just this place. And they would say, cool. We will set up a shipment for you. We will deliver supplies to those places. And they were really good about that. They would say, you know, so how many days are you going to be there? How many days are you going to dialyze while you're there? All right, then we will send 
We'll do the simple math with you on the phone or by email, I think, in some cases, and we'll send X amount of dialysis and this much saline and any syringes and whatever that you need to this place or that place. And that was good because the travel we were going to do in this particular case was because you had gotten into a number of law schools and we wanted to check them out uh, to see where you wanted to go to school. So we were planning to go to Washington, D.C. to visit Georgetown, and we were planning to come um, to New York City uh, to visit Columbia. So we talked about that. It was about a week-long trip. Right, and we were going to first go to Washington, D.C., yeah. spend several days there, and then fly from D.C. to New York several days there and then home. And because we didn't have a ton of opportunity or money to travel a lot, we'd kind of pad it out as much as we could these trips. So we added, hey, you and I have never gone and seen all the Smithsonian museums. We've never seen the National Mall. Let's stay a couple extra days after the school visitation and do that. Right. Let's go see New York City after I visit Columbia because we wanted to kind of have a little, have a vacation in it too. Yeah. This is part of our overall strategy that I want to keep coming back to because it's been important in our lives, which was that we really, really, really wanted to make the most of whatever opportunities we had. Yeah. That's been a big part of living with your condition mm -hmm. is not waiting for, well, maybe someday Ari will be feeling better, so let's put everything on hold until then. It's seizing right now and making it the best that it can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, that we were kind of lucky that they basically had visiting students weekends planned in weekend succession. So we basically showed up for the Georgetown thing and then stayed a few extra days. And then we went to New York and were there a few days before the Columbia thing started, um, which was really convenient and worked it's really well. It's almost like admissions offices plan these things. Yeah, it maybe. <laughs> I will say that when I was taking the LSAT and applying to law schools, <laughs> and I was very nervous about all this. So I applied to just about everywhere yeah and you said you know i'm on the machine i can do dialysis anywhere you go to law school i'll follow right. you there i really 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 would prefer not to live in a big city like washington dc or new york yeah those were specifically the two cities i listed before my acceptance letters came yeah that was uh a surprise <laughs> not that you got in but that those were the two cities that we ended up visiting so <laughs> I also had to get in touch with the hotels and say, hey, there's going to be these deliveries for me. And, you know, hotels want to let you have anything show up for you. So they were fine with that. Um, and I, then I had to say, no, like really big deliveries <laughs> and say, you know, these are medical supplies. It's not a big deal, but, you know, keep them in a dry place kind of thing. And they were fine. But I think they were ultimately surprised at getting, you know, 8 to 12 cardboard boxes that were very heavy, which is not what you usually receive when you're a hotel for a visitor that's staying four days. But basically, yeah, I I contacted the company for the supplies. I contacted the hotels to let them know that the supplies were coming. And that's a little bit of a deal to do, but compared with setting up uh, visitor dialysis, so much easier so much easier and so much more convenient. Uh, so we did all of that. And then um, I took my trusty letter and my copy of the FAA regulations and 
my copy of the ADA regulations, and we marched in with our machine and our bags and everything to SeaTac, ready to just have no problem happen whatsoever, and we ended up that having... That is not exactly true. <laughs> I think we were a little bit loaded for bear. We, we were a little bit, and the fact is that it wasn't that bad. Um, it was probably like a 20-minute conversation, and we had been a little bit loaded for bear, but we were also kind of ready to be okay, and it mostly just was a matter of finally speaking to the right person, showing them the letter, and then also, I think we might have had to ask them to weigh it on a different scale because it was supposed to show up at about 95 to 100 pounds and their scale was miscalibrated, so it showed up at 105, which meant that no way was it going to work. And we were like, no, really, they've, this is designed to be this. They've tested it. Your scale's wrong. We're like, no, no, no. And so anyway, we kind of went around in circles a couple of times, but eventually it totally worked. Yeah, and I, I think... Part of this story is a little bit revealing as to how you and I operate in roles in our relationship. <laughs> because we arrived at the airport hours early because yeah. we were afraid. I don't know how long this is going to take. Right. And it took a long time. Yeah. And I will say that because sometimes when you're really, really sick, mm -hmm. I become the manager right. of logistics or of dealing with what needs to be dealt with if you're either out of it or sometimes... You have a hearing problem or... I always have a hearing problem. Sometimes the hearing problem affects what we're doing. Yes. Or sometimes your energy level does. Or sometimes you're having a weird cognition day and you need help. Yeah. But we also really try to manage it so that with anything regarding your health where you can take care of it, mm -hmm. I want to be completely hands off. Right. So we get to the airport <laughs> hours early and we're walking in. We've got this gigantic machine on bungee, a roller cart. bungee corded to a roller cart that we purchased. Yes. And we're walking up and I say, okay, you are, Ari, the more patient, even-tempered person in this relationship. <laughs> uh -huh. I think that you should do the approach here. You should explain things. Mm -hmm. And I'll just stand off to the side. Yes. <laughs> and you'll you'll tell them what the deal is. Yeah, that is what you said. And... That worked. That plan worked for all of about two minutes once you reached the counter. Wow. I, I remember closer to 30 seconds, but, but sure. They started giving you the first bit of resistance. Which was really just a, so wait, what now? And I could not. St I just, I already flipped open the packet to the highlighted portion of the American Disabilities Act. I'm like, you listen here. You have to let him on this plane with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't know what hit them. I didn't know what was going on. It it did result in what we needed to have happen. And I mean, we're we're laughing about this. You were fine. You were you know you were a little stressed about it, and so a tad, a tad, and so a skosh. Um, so that came out a little bit, but we did better the next time, I think. <laughs> and and actually, it, it, they they really were. They were pretty much fine. They just kind of. Like we said, they had never encountered this before. And so they did kind of what I would do, which would be like, okay, so wait, sorry, what's happening? Because that's very large. And first, I'm going to explain to you the policy as I understand it. And then, as it turns out, then you, Ari, are going to tell me, actually, right here it says, according to FAA, that 100 pounds and it's a medical device and those sort of things, this is actually allowed and you can't charge me for it. Oh, interesting. I have not heard that before. Let me go get my manager. And all that, that's pretty much what needed to happen. That's pretty much what happened. Every time we ever did this, 
but there was a little bit more heat in there <laughs> interjected a couple of times. We were first timers. Yeah. And so were they. Traveling with a home machine is, like you said, so much easier than trying to deal with visitor dialysis. So much. But that moment in the airport is stressful. And it's not a moment. It can sometimes be a really long time because you are always going to have to stand there in the line while other people are looking at you trying to wait to check their bags while somebody leaves to go get a manager. Mm -hmm. You're there with all your documents. You're worried if they... They could be wrong. They could just stick to their guns on a wrong position and not let you fly today. Right. And so that's a stressful moment. Mm -hmm. And like I said way back in an earlier podcast, because of experiences when you've been vulnerable in the hospital, I'm really protective. Yeah. And when anything dealing with your health, when that person starts to give you that first bit of resistance, that first bit of, I don't know about this, <laughs> it's really hard for me to take. Yeah. Yeah, but we negotiated it and uh, got on the plane and flew out. We had a really great visit. You did dialysis in a hotel. I did. I did. And it was it was really, really smooth. The only thing that happened was, I think when we got to New York, they had sent the wrong number of dialysis bags, which meant that we were fine, but we had to move one of the like off of dialysis days up because then they just rush shipped more. Um, and it was, it was fine. Like the customer service was great and you know, their heavy boxes in the hotel just sent them up to our room. It was super easy. We had room to do it. Yeah. I just, I dialyzed in the hotel room and um, you were able to go to the events you needed to go to. And I was able to go to those events too, for the most part, it was pretty sweet. It was also less time intensive. We were able to do all of the dialysis stuff on our own terms. So I think there was a day where just I woke up pretty early and dialyzed so that then we could have the whole day being out on the town or on the mall or whichever day that was. There was some other day where, you know, we decided, okay, we just need to be, we can go out and explore and see the cool stuff we want to see. We just need to be back in the hotel by whatever time it is so I can start setting up, so I can be on the machine, so I can be off the machine, so we can go to the college event in the evening. I said college, the law school event in the evening. And that was phenomenally flexible compared to all of the, the in-center stuff that we would have had to deal with that would have been crazy and challenging. Yeah, and it's definitely odd. It's yeah. one of those times in life where you're changing gears a lot. Oh, here we are at this admitted student's reception. Oh, thank you for the drink. Oh, these duck spring rolls are delicious. Okay, <laughs> time to go. Let's hop on a public transit, get back to the hotel and unpack dialysis so that we can do a medical procedure involving tubes and needles and blood in a hotel room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's unquestionably weird, but it was also remarkably convenient compared to what it could have been. Oh, absolutely. And you were able to be more present. Yeah. When I compare that to trips where you had to do in-center dialysis, it isn't just that you had to leave and drive out to the center and spend way more hours gone and then come back and be sleepy. And the additional toll that in-center dialysis takes on your body and mind, but also a lot of your trip and your mental energy is with dialysis and thinking yeah. about dialysis. And this was a thing that you did for a few hours on a machine. 
And then you were off enjoying being a tourist with me. Yeah. Or being my partner at the events that we were going to. Yeah. Met a lot of people from Harvard. (laughs) I think another aspect of this whole thing with this trip is that in part because the dialysis stuff was so easy, again, relatively speaking, is that I don't actually have a ton of memories of that on this trip. Like, I know that I did it, but mostly my memories of that trip are visiting Georgetown, meeting other students, hearing what professors had to say, being really excited for you and the possibilities and opportunities that were ahead of you. I remember a lot of the tourist stuff we did. I remember various Smithsonian museums we went to, some of the places we ate. Uh, that was It was really cool. I'm really glad we got to go to all the museums we did in D.C. and see the things we did. We had fun visiting some monuments. You know, we did the D.C. stuff. Uh, and in New York, you know, we we went to see a Broadway show because you had always really wanted to do that. I was going to say, it's such a shame that we haven't gotten to do that since, but uh, that's obviously not true. We did that. We went to eat at some places we'd heard were were fun and cool from friends and family. Um, Again, meeting professors and other students, you know, truly, I, I joke about it sometimes, but you were coming from University of Washington, and on your badge, on everybody's badge... I think this was a a real hallmark of the fact that we were in Ivy League Law School when we were visiting Columbia. It said name and then the name of your undergraduate institution. And mine was weird because I was just a guest. And I don't think it said guest, but also I wasn't there for school. So it just said my name, which meant either I was really important or I wasn't. And a lot of people couldn't figure that out and it really disturbed them. But... Everywhere we went, it was, oh, here's somebody. They're from Harvard. Here's somebody else. They went to Yale. Here's somebody else. They went to Princeton. Here's somebody else who also went to Harvard. And your badge was one of the very few that was just public university. Um, and that was weird. because oh, oh, yeah. The law school status games. <laughs> <laughs> began real early. <laughs> Could be the topic of an entirely different podcast. Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Um, And, you know, having said that, though, I mean, the visits were, they were just really fun. And so I guess I got a little bit off track. But what I'm saying is that trip was in many ways the first, at least semi-normal, whatever normal means, um, vacation that I had been on since I'm not even sure when. Maybe sometime... In the early 2000s, like my family went to Hawaii, but probably even before the turn of the century. Um, with all my health stuff, there were every once in a while there had been some kind of kind of family vacation that I had missed. I think mainly that was there's just one or two like that. But um, where I this was a trip where I didn't have to go for dialysis and do something else for my I want to say 21st birthday. It might have been my 22nd. My parents um, had done this very nice thing where they took me to Las Vegas. And 
that was really cool because I was home from college and I didn't, I wasn't hanging out with any friends or people my age. So this would have been between your first and second transplant. Yeah, it was after my first transplant had failed and I had to come home from Lawrence. And I did visitor dialysis in Vegas, which is not as glitzy as it sounds. It's just a regular dialysis center. None of the techs came in and did a magic show for you? Um, they did make a needle disappear in my arm. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> they made toxins disappear. Yeah, and then a cab came and got me, took me back to the strip. I had a fancy dinner and went to a show. And I remember all of those things because dialysis was really inconvenient. That trip was super awesome. I'm really glad I went on it. It was really fun. It was good to hang out with my parents. We did lots of cool stuff. But I specifically remember the inconvenience and medicalness and weirdness of being on dialysis there. And this trip, I remember that I did it. I remember that it was pretty easy. And then everything else I remember about that trip is like normal trip stuff, which was so great. It was so great. <laughs> it was really, really easy. It was kind of like magic. And you just mentioned this trip with your parents, and that might actually be a good transition to something else we should talk about. Right. Which is that during this era where we're touring around law schools, I'm about to graduate from the University of Washington, and we're going to move somewhere. We don't know where yet. Right. This is around the time that Alport syndrome started to really affect your mother. Yes. She is far more of an expert on this part of the story than I am, obviously. Right, of course. And we can't speak for her. So this <laughs> right. is just a kind of through the window view of that. Yeah, it really is. And also, um, it was a while ago. As you might recall, uh, when I was first being evaluated for my first transplant and all of my family was saying, oh, maybe we could donate a kidney, one of the things that they discovered was that my mother's kidney function was lower than it should have been. And that was our first clue that this whole idea we had been taught where women are carriers and boys are victims. <laughs> not true. Is not true that my mother wasn't just a carrier, but she actually had Alport syndrome. And I think at that time it was, it was kind of like, oh, well, that's weird. And then of course now we know it's not weird. That's just how it works. Right. And we talk about this a lot in the episode we did about the Alport syndrome foundation meeting. Exactly. About how this disease affects women and X chromosome inactivation. Yeah. Which is super interesting. And we were kind of, as with so many things, flying by the seat of our pants at that time. So she began being followed by a nephrologist, and her kidney function remained fairly stable for a really long time. Slowly, slowly going down, but it was the kind of thing where they said, a transplant or more likely dialysis may be in your future, but we don't know. But the rate of decline is very, very slow. So it's probably far in the future. And if you guys had known then what the Alport Syndrome Foundation and other groups know now, probably at that point she would have been put on ACE inhibitors. Yeah, I think that's true. To either prevent or delay end-stage renal failure. Yeah, I, I think that's the case because I'm not sure if she really had proteinuria or hematuria much at all at that point. Um, maybe a little. Uh, eventually she did develop it because her kidney function did steadily decline. Again, very slowly. Um, the thing is, is I was going to say funny, but the thing that's kind of funny is that 
um, when they said, well, maybe sometime in the distant future you might be on dialysis or even require a transplant, is that that's the kind of thing that they had said really hypothetically to me. When you were a teenager. When I was a teenager, and it turned out to be completely wrong. And so when they said that, we were all like, oh, what does that mean? Is this even trustworthy? But by that time, we thought, well, they know so much more now, eight years later. <laughs> uh, and so it turned out they were right. So fast forward about 10 years. I'm at Central Washington. I have my second transplant. Things are going well, and then they're not. Um, we spent a fair amount of time talking about those things. During that time, my mother's kidney function started to become more of a topic of conversation because it was getting noticeably worse and she was feeling more tired. And I'm pretty sure that she was then having uh, blood in her urine. And then they started to talk about, okay, we're watching this much more closely. So instead of, say, every six month blood test, she was having monthly blood tests to see where her kidney function was on a pretty regular basis because they were starting to look at starting her on dialysis. We do have a little bit of an account from your mom, from okay. the email she sent. I saved a bit of it and didn't read it on an earlier episode because I thought it would be more relevant now. So what your mom said is this. I had a kidney infection when I was six, shortly before my mother died. That's some fun psychology to ponder. Anyway... I was followed by a urologist throughout my childhood, and again when we moved to Portland, I saw a nephrologist for a short time. I don't remember when I started seeing my regular nephrologist or why, but it was while Ari was in high school. Basically, my kidney function was monitored, and he thought it would be stable around 50% throughout my life. In the spring of 2007, I was tired all the time, and it turned out I was anemic and received iron infusions. At the time, my doctor cryptically commented that I would be fine through the summer. <laughs> okay. That June was my daughter's wedding, and then we were in Hawaii for some time. At the end of the summer, the doctor said that I would need to start dialysis by Christmas. It started on the first day of school. Your mom, she's retired now, but she was still a teacher at the time, mm -hmm. in early September. So when my mom talks about starting on dialysis in September, she's still actively working as a teacher. She was a library media specialist. Or later in her career, she, she would call herself a library media teacher because she was a certified teacher in addition to being the school librarian um, at a high school in Oregon. And she continued to do that job full time while being on dialysis. And she had the fistula installed, uh, similar to what I had had done in her left arm. And we drove down from Seattle to be there during that surgery. Yeah, yeah, I believe that is true. I don't really remember that, but I think that we definitely did that. And, you know, she was nervous for obvious reasons, but it was a strange role reversal because I had a ton of experience, of course, as a dialysis patient, and she had zero experience as a dialysis patient and some experience being the caretaker of somebody on dialysis. And my dad had some experience being the caretaker of somebody on dialysis. But the fact is that when I lived with them and did in center, once we had spent that time getting things set up in the late 90s, um, the very late 90s, early 2000s, I basically did all of that by myself. 
I drove myself there. I drove myself back. Even before that, I was using public transportation because it was stuff in the middle of the day and things like that that my parents could not just leave their teaching jobs to come transport me. And so dialysis centers, while they're very familiar places to me, were pretty strange places for them. So it was, it was a weirdly scary new world for them while being also sort of vaguely familiar. And so they were getting all the same training I had, in some cases from the same people, but I also had a lot of real-world experience that they were asking me about. And so I was trying to give them tips I had picked up. Um, my mom was asking a fair number of questions. My dad was asking a fair number of questions. It was also really, I'm going to say from my perspective, a, a strange time in in the aspect that there had been things when I was on dialysis that I had said were the case about how I felt that seemed like a little weird. Or I would actually add, even before I was on dialysis, when I was in high school, I, I think I talked about this in a m m very early episode, that I would say, oh, I have this symptom or that symptom. I am extremely exhausted. I have these headaches. I have mostly the exhaustion thing or some of the cognition stuff. And they're the kind of thing that people have a hard time really grasping or understanding or in some cases believing. And my parents, as I've said many times, are wonderful people, but sometimes they fell victim to those kinds of assumptions or thought patterns. And occasionally had difficulty going, really, Ari, couldn't you just get it together? And the experience of my mom having worse and worse kidney function and then starting on dialysis was really eye-opening for, I think, both of them to see not, this would sound terrible, like not Ari wasn't lying because I don't think they ever really thought I was lying, but to really actually understand what I had been talking about as opposed to just kind of believing me when I said something was true. And... um in a very strange way, I would say that that kind of brought us closer together. And I, just by sort of shared experience, but also by, oh, this is what you meant when you said that all those years ago. And I would say, yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. And then, but also feel really terrible because I knew how bad it was. And I mean, I was on dialysis myself at the time. And so we were going through this thing together that sucked. It was terrible. And it was like, oh, we're sharing this saying, love you, love you, but also, ugh, but we're sharing this. <laughs> like, why does it have to be this? Right. And how is that, especially, this is such a big thing in your family to suddenly have mm -hmm. this new layer of understanding decades later. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was weird. I think I still feel like it's a little weird. I mean, it's a long time ago now, but, and I think they still think it's a little weird. Um, it also led to a couple of interesting and or fun situations. <laughs> fun is probably not the right word. Um, where my mom and I dialyzed together at the same center. She did not go to the dialysis center that I had gone to. Um, she instead went to one in downtown Portland that was a lot closer to her school. So she could just leave school right at the end of the day, go dialyze and then come home. But several times we would visit them for something and I would just set up visitor dialysis there, which made a lot of sense. And this is before we got that home hemo machine. Right. 
This we're, is, we're bouncing around in time a little bit to catch up. A little bit to catch up. So that, of course, led to the extremely surreal experience of dialyzing with my mother across the room from former Portland mayor Vera Katz. And this qualifies as the weirdest celebrity sighting. <laughs> Probably. You know, at the time, Portland is a major city in Oregon. In fact, it's pretty much the major city in Oregon. But compared to Seattle and San Francisco, its nearest large city neighbors, it's not. It's pretty small. And Oregon is a not very largely or it's not a very highly populated state to begin with. And so, um, you know, the mayor is a celebrity. <laughs> and that was a thing that we knew about her, that she had um, started on dialysis. She was by then our former mayor by several, several Beloved years. Beloved former mayor. Uh, by, I mean, by our family, not by everybody, I think. So it was just sort of an interesting factoid. Oh, yeah, former mayor Vera Katz is, uh, she's a dialysis patient now. And my mom had mentioned, I think, like, oh, yeah, she comes to my center sometimes. I thought, well, that's, that's just weird. Okay. And then, sure enough, there it was. I'm on the machine, reading a book, playing Game Boy, watching TV, chatting with my mom, whatever it was. And I look up and there's this weirdly familiar figure sitting across the room, you know, like 30 feet away on dialysis. And I looked at my mom and I was like, is that Vera Katz? And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is her night. Anyway, uh, yeah, all this is to say, like, my mom started dialysis and then I dialyzed with her and sort of was able to share tips and tricks. And she was able to ask me some questions and then became an expert on her own. She's a librarian. She knows how to do research. Boy, does she. <laughs> She's a great researcher. So she was on dialysis for about a year. And that year was for several reasons. One was mostly just to kind of stabilize her health um, because she was definitely planning on trying to receive a transplant. And um, her youngest brother my other uncle had said something at some point when she said to the family, I'm going to be starting on dialysis. Like, I think I could give you a kidney. And so she was on dialysis to sort of stabilize her, but also kind of in a way, like I've said before, waiting until her kidney function was bad enough that she would be eligible for a transplant. So on July 15th, 2008, my mother received a kidney transplant from her brother, Raymond. It was pretty great. And it was a little surreal for me because at that point I'd had two transplants that had also failed. I was familiar with the transplant process, but I had never seen it from the side that I was seeing it there where I was just sort of a hanger on, a family member of the patient. Um, but at the same time, I'm really familiar with how hospitals go, how the procedures go, how some of those things work. And I like to think I was able to kind of help make some things go more smoothly with that knowledge and the familiarity of that particular hospital um, and some things like that. Uh, many, many members of the family showed up as they do, and we all kind of hung out before and after, well, and during the surgery, but while they were uh, in the hospital recovering, both of them, for about a week. Surgery went super well. Raymond uh, 
recovered very quickly, as I recall, and today is, you know, perfectly fine and went back home and does all the things that he does. And my mom recovered very well and still has that transplant eight years later. It's been working great. It's been working fantastic. Um, she yeah, was still working at the time. So she was on dialysis and working for a year when she had the transplant in July. And then I don't remember, it was not that many more years. She was fairly close to retirement by that time. So she finished out however many years she kind of had left in the sort of the retirement plan that she had set up and and then retired. But the transplant helped a great deal. She is, of course, you know, I say I'm a very compliant patient. My mom is like the most compliant of compliant people I've ever known. Uh, she also became a a patient educator who did, and I think maybe still occasionally does, presentations at high schools and for high school students and sometimes other groups of, of people about our family, about its Alport syndrome and its effect on our family, about me, about her, about sort of our story, but also she's had more training than I have about some of the medical specifics, or at least at the time, some of the medical specifics that we knew about our genetics and some of the ways that it works in kidneys and has done all of those things. As with so many things, she <laughs> jumped in with both feet and started being amazing at it right away. So that's sort of, I guess, my, my mom's stuff in a nutshell that was really fascinating for me seeing it from this other angle, seeing our disease and experiencing it from this other angle. And your mom with her kidney transplant and Raymond who gave her the kidney and then her other brother, Michael, who gave the kidney to you, they all match. They all have one working kidney. That's right. That's right. Three kidneys between the three of them. <laughs> I had not really thought about that, but that is true. Um, so I've been, <laughs> I've been really, really happy for my mom about how that has really worked out for her because I, I'm sure I've mentioned it here. One of the things that is always so hard for me emotionally is, well, I have this disease and it sucks. I don't want anybody else to have it. I, nope, just me. I will take it all on myself and, um, everybody else can go about having their good lives and not have to worry about it. And it, that makes it sound like some kind of martyr complex or something. And, and that's not what it is. It's just that. I want it to be contained. I don't want, it's bad enough that I have to deal with it. I don't want other people to have to be affected by it too. And in this case, you know, it's a disease. I got it from her. Um, not that she could have helped it, obviously, but the fact that I grew up thinking, oh, she's just a carrier. Thank goodness. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible for me, but at least, you know, my mother, who I love, is never going to have to suffer the effects. And then, watching her suffer the effects was like, was terrible because I knew it was coming. <laughs> and she sort of knew and then actually got to experience it um, or had to experience it. And uh, I'm just really, really glad that the transplant worked so well and that she's had such, um, I wouldn't say an easy run, but a much more straightforward um, run and course of treatment Um with that transplant and with her health, that she's just been very, very stable. And since retiring, she and my dad have done a ton of really cool travel, which is pretty much what they always wanted to do. 
It's why I wasn't born in the, in the continental U.S. And they've really, really gotten to enjoy that a lot. And I've been so thrilled for them um, every time they do more cool things and get to go off and enjoy themselves. And I think that's a good place to end the story for this episode. Sure. So I'm going to transition into a listener question. We got a question from Mark. And he says that, um, well, you've talked about being a teacher and talking to students about Alport syndrome. Yeah. So he asks, how does your disease affect your being a teacher? <laughs> um, if I was a book writing kind of person, I feel like I could write a book. And the, But the short answer is, is I don't know, which is weird. I have always been a fairly patient person. And that's been generally to my benefit when dealing with long-term health issues. With chronic disease, patience is really helpful. As a teacher, being patient is really helpful. And I feel like I sort of gained some patience or some patient skills that then helped me as a teacher. I think that also, though, one thing with chronic illness is that sometimes you need to learn when it's time to stop being patient. You know, we were sort of laughing about going in to speak to the the gate agents with our all our materials and things and how you went in like, no, you're going to give me what, what we need. And I was ready to be more patient. But that's also exactly the kind of situation where I go in prepared to be patient and friendly and firm and also ready to be impatient, prepared to say, OK, no. This is ridiculous. I've been here for half an hour and everything I'm saying is absolutely true and I'm entitled to this and what you're doing is not okay. That's a skill that I've gained as I've gotten older and I've, I've gained it both through my chronic illness and through my teaching and it informs, you know, the other situation. Because as a teacher, patience is great, but if you're too patient, then nothing ever happens. You know, I, I come back to there's a, a really common meme, at least in my universe, of the skeleton saying, just sitting there with its its skull on its bony hand saying, teachers be like, I'm just going to wait till the class is quiet. And if all you are as a teacher is patient, then that's what happens. There has to be a point where you say, enough is enough, we're moving on, or many, many kinds of variations of that, as I'm sure we've all experienced either as students or teachers or something else. So that's one way. I think... Also, um, I teach a different segment of the population now than I taught when I first started teaching. When I first started teaching in 2000, 2004, um, at Westview High School, I was teaching in the extremely white and sometimes Asian and very, very occasionally Hispanic suburbs of Beaverton. I've talked about that at length. I really liked it. It was really great. The teaching was really fun. The music we made was good. The kids were terrific. All that is true. But those kids came to that situation with a certain set of life experiences that are largely informed by privilege and not that much tragedy. And I'm happy about that. I was happy about that. There were occasionally weird little things where, like, when you're doing stuff with art, a little bit of tragedy can be good because occasionally we'd be playing some music and I would say, this needs to sound tragic or it needs to sound sad or there needs to be some of that think about when something bad happened to you i remember saying that to like a freshman girl like 
What's like a really tough thing that you had to deal with? Because the composer is writing about this tough time that he had to deal with this thing. And I remember her just thinking for a really long time and staring at me and going, I, I don't know. What a wonderful life. Right. And I was just like, can we trade? Like, <laughs> because even minus my health issues, like everybody has something. And here she was. And, you know, good for her that at 14, like nothing. It was great. That was somewhat common. And now I teach in East New York. I teach in Brooklyn. My students are mostly, mostly live below the poverty line. They are almost entirely African American or Latino or Hispanic. They have so much of a different set of experiences that they bring to school that sometimes it just gets casually mentioned. And it's, it's a really different norm. And so the fact that I do have, I really hate using the word tragedy here, but I have the background I do because of my health means that I understand certain things about my students, even though as teenagers, they don't always think that is true. But I understand some of those things better. That helps. It helps that I know weird little bits of things about how the human body works so that that I might have picked up other places because some people do but I picked it up by being a <laughs> frequent patient that sometimes a kid is having this issue or that issue and I can say try doing this this and this and then they do and then they feel better or they can have something to focus on or they have a strategy um, usually that's around headaches but not always um Another more direct way that it helps or affects my teaching is that I tell this story, the story of like my health and struggling to graduate from college and become a teacher, that we're sort of still in the process of telling long form in this podcast. I have about a 15, 20-minute version that I share with my students every year, and uh, this year I actually tried an experiment that I think is working better because the anniversary of my third transplant is in May. And so what I have done the last two or three years is on that date, I say, hey, it's a special day today and I'd like to tell you a story about that, you know, about halfway through class. And that's great, but and it is great, but it's so far towards the end of the year that it's just a story that I'm telling them. And this year, I told all of my students that story within the first two or three weeks. And I always tell it in a specific way that's really focused around the idea of perseverance. And so I tell that story this year as a way of introducing that idea. Um, and also, hey, kids, get to know me in this way. Understand that when you're saying, oh, I'm not feeling well, that I know what that feels like <laughs> and not as a challenge thing, but just like, I really get it. And this is where I'm coming from. And I've found this year that I, I think it, it did a really good job of that, that like I'm using it as a tool, but also I'm sharing something with my students in an attempt to create a stronger relationship with them. And it has done all of those things really well. I think there's a final aspect to this too, that relates 
to what I was talking about, about patience and impatience, where sometimes students say, basically, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not going to do your work. I'm going to take the day off. And there are times where I kind of take that personally, because I view my role as a teacher as somebody who is whose job it is to help my students be successful. And success is a word that has a lot of definitions, but that I want my students to learn good skills and graduate from high school and go to a decent college and be successful at college and be able to have a career that they're interested in that pays well, that is satisfying. And and not just satisfaction from the career, but like be good people, you know, all of those things. And I, I pretty strongly believe that in order to do that, you know, perseverance is important. So continuing to try and put in some effort, even when you're not feeling it, is going to help you do things you want and be satisfied and be happy in lots and lots of areas of your life. And I also know that I have spent so much time struggling and waiting and taking time off that I didn't want to take off to get to where I am, that when I see somebody else who doesn't have the same struggles that I do, and they have their own struggles. Teenagers all have struggles, and many of my students have extremely serious other things going on, like where where I would actually say, yes, tragedy, and that make me incredibly sad to think about all the time, and that are very distracting, but that even still, with those things going on, they're able to be at school. I wasn't sometimes. I was unable to do just about anything sometimes for years, and to see them go, eh, I'm not feeling it right now. Like, I don't want to, and I feel bad about it, but I feel really impatient with that and sometimes personally upset at that because I'm I'm trying to do this job. I'm trying to help them and trying to give them, you know, the gift of education or whatever it is I'm trying to do. And and they're going, yeah, maybe not. And it's so it's so aggravating to me. And I I usually handle it pretty well, but inside I'm like seething. Like, how could you even? And um, so I guess ultimately I'm not quite sure how that actually affects my actual teaching, but I know how that affects me as a teacher in those situations. And, you know, that's a little hard for me to admit because I, I feel kind of bad about it. Cause well, I you'd feel- like to always be the most patient and <laughs> never take anything personally. And it's just a teenager. And- right. And I, I'm pretty good at that. You know, and I get better all the time and it's a thing I work on, but that's a thing that really gets under my skin. And I, it's kids sometimes try to get under your skin. And that is not a way I think any kid could ever predict that it would. And mostly I don't let it in that way, of course. But yeah, sometimes that's just a, a weird little artifact of difficulty for me. Yeah. And I think that the cliche is always, oh, I had this terrible disease or this horrible hardship that I went through, but it made me a better person. <laughs> I'm I'm better and more understanding and more compassionate than I ever would have been if I'd had an easy, healthy life. Right. And the reality is, in some cases, maybe you're more patient mm-hmm. than you would be otherwise. But there's also, right, sometimes 
it's hard to watch people who don't have to deal with the stuff that you have to deal with not working as hard as you have. Like there's right. it it can lead to resentment or that that trying not to take it personally feeling that going through something hard doesn't automatically confer sainthood. <laughs> Definitely not. And that just leaves my final question for the week. Ari, how are you feeling? Well, I I think this is a theme for the last several episodes. Pretty exhausted. Um, I'm pretty worn out. I'm, you know, like I said before, I'm doing okay, but I'm kind of exhausted. And fortunately, at least for me, this month and these last couple of weeks, because of various holidays and other things, there have been several days off. We have this very weird Swiss cheese schedule in October, and that's kind of lightened my load enough that, that I'm, I'm doing okay, but I'm pretty tired. Yeah, and I got sick. Yeah. And so one of the things about if you live with somebody who's on immunosuppressants and yeah. you get sick, you've got to try really, really hard not to get them sick. So I've been using a lot of Purell and we haven't been kissing as much. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small apartment. So it's it's hard to stay away from each other, but we, we're doing our best. And that's it for this week's episode. If you have a question or a comment for us, please email kidneycast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidneycast and Twitter at kidneycast. All the episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Please, if you have any little bit of time, take the time to give us a review. We really, really appreciate it. It's a yeah. great favor for us. All episodes are also available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you so much for talking to me, Ari. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone for listening. <laughs>